Welcome back to this week's episode of The Emily Show. This week, we are doing a case brief because the U.S. v. Elizabeth Holmes trial is just getting ready to kick off jury instruction. The actions in this case happened so many years ago, you might be like, oh my God, I've forgotten what this is even about. Or you might be picking up this story for the first time going, oh my God, there's a lot of information out here. How do I catch up? So I'm going to talk a little bit about what's going on with this case, a little bit about what I expect to see from the trial. This is going to be a fairly long criminal trial, but because we're going to see a Genshaw trial with some of these similar crimes, you know, conspiracy to commit wire fraud and wire fraud. (laughs) I think it's helpful to break down kind of what I expect to see from this trial and give you just a brief background on what's going on here. So that's what we're doing today on The Emily Show. Because baby, now we got bad blood. I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. You know, it used to be mad love. Like it fits so well. And the reporter for the Wall Street Journal that really broke this story and just went to the whistleblowers and cracked this wide open, named his book about it, Bad Blood, and has a podcast coming out, kind of doing the final chapter covering this trial and all the investigative reporting work that they did. And I can't wait to talk about it. So yeah. So baby, now we got bad blood. You know, we used to be mad love. Yeah. I used to be on the cover of all the magazines and now is facing prison. I I would say that's a big turnabout. We should just get into this week's episode. Don't you think? We should. We should just get into it. Hey there. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm your host, Emily D. Baker, badass lawyer and everyone's favorite legal commentator, breaking down the legal shit in the news and pop culture stories you want to talk about. I've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I'm a big fan of the cursey words. So let's break it down. I will say I'm recording this on Monday, August 30th. This episode airs on September 1st. Can you believe it's September? I can't either. I can't believe it. I can't believe it's September 1st. That means we are a week away from launching some bonus material over on Patreon for you. So stay tuned on the social medias at the Emily Baker for that. But before we get into it, I would like to thank this episode's sponsor. I am so excited to share with you this week's sponsor of The Emily Show, Green Chef. This is the first meal box that I have tried, and they are actually the number one meal kit for eating well. We tried a box for our family, and it was absolutely fantastic. One, the kids enjoyed unboxing it. Two, the food was delicious and everybody ate it. And three, it was so fresh and so easy to make. It just took about 30 minutes to put together dinner for our entire family and have something we wouldn't normally make. We eat kind of (laughs) basic. We eat really simply because we just generally don't have the energy to creatively meal plan and look for recipes. And so last night we ate a wonderful chicken with peanut sauce. But what was great is when I went to order my box, I could customize it around our food allergies and our food needs for our family. And they have boxes for specific diets and then boxes for balanced living. And you can pick the number of people in your box. It was really easy, really delicious, and actually a lot of fun. Like everything was just ready. 
It was so nice. It just absolutely makes it easier to get dinner on the table. We are back to crazy schedules with the kids being in school. And so knowing that dinner just will take the amount of time it says on the thing, we're not going to use every single pan in the house. We're not going to spend hours prepping food to be ready and we can just get on with our life. It also was a balanced meal and it included green beans. My kids loved them. I loved them. It was great. Clean ingredients, premium ingredients, like organic vegetables, wonderful high quality proteins. The chicken was delicious. Tonight we're having pork. I cannot wait. So if you want to give this a try and see how easy it is to eat well, go ahead and go to greenchef.com slash Emily Baker 100 and use code Emily Baker 100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. What? $100 off and free shipping. You just need to go to greenchef.com slash Emily Baker 100 or use code Emily Baker 100. And that will all be linked below so you can see it in the description and the show notes. Thank you again, Green Chef, for sponsoring this week's Emily Show. Let's get back to today's legal tea. You guys, this story is crazy. Have you been following this? I think my biggest takeaways, I'm going to give you my biggest takeaways, and then we're going to back into the rest of the story. My biggest takeaways are that asking questions is still critical. Even when it feels like absolute defiance, you have to still ask questions. It was the whistleblowers that asked questions in this case that were beyond all probability and against kind of substantial odds that really brought this case to light and got regulators to shut down Elizabeth Holmes's company, Theranos. Now, I always want to say Theranos. I know that's not how you say it. I feel like it's like Thanos. <laughs> but no, Theran. <laughs> no, I'm going to say it wrong now. See, I, I mentioned it. I mentioned it. And now I'm not going to be able to undo it. Theranos. Um, this company was supposed to revolutionize healthcare, and everyone genuinely wanted to believe in this premise because people, I think, are generally good and wanted to believe that this device, this technology, this female 19-year-old wonderkin unicorn was going to revolutionize it and make healthcare accessible for all, to revolutionize the way we test, to just take a finger drop of blood and be able to run hundreds and hundreds of different tests with it on this little machine she called the Edison. And they were going to be in your local pharmacies at a Walgreens or wherever. And it was going to make healthcare affordable and accessible so that money and access wouldn't be an issue to running blood work so that you could detect uh, disease or changes more easily and more quickly and at the onset. And you wouldn't be deterred because you didn't want to have vials of blood taken. You didn't want to go drive to a Quest or a LabCorp and have to, you know, do all the things, fasting, all the things you have to do before blood work. And people, the investors, the board, people wanted to believe in this premise. It seemed like the the medical field around this wasn't quite sure how this was happening. And they always had questions, but it took those inside the company to be like, I don't care that she's on the cover of Forbes and Fortune and Time and everything else. Something's not right inside this company. And what she's saying we're doing is not what we're doing. And that's where the criminal charges come in for this behavior years ago. And this case and trial have gotten substantially bumped 
because of COVID. It also got bumped a little bit because Elizabeth Holmes just gave birth and is newly postpartum, which some have speculated is a empathy strategy that if she was showing during trial with, you know, sitting at the defense table with a big pregnant belly that jurors might be more inclined to believe her. Some are like, oh, it just happened. You knew trial was coming though. Like she had successfully not gotten pregnant up until now. So I can understand why people have speculation regarding it, but this company was you know, to the moon, right? It was a unicorn. It had hundreds of million invested and a $9 billion valuation. Elizabeth Holmes was the founder of this company at 19. She had dropped out of Stanford and started wearing black turtlenecks like Steve Jobs. And some speculate changed her voice so it would be deeper. It's a, from the interviews I've watched, and I've watched quite a bit at this point, it is fairly affected, which also I found offensive as someone who was picked on for having a low voice as a female most of my life, for her to 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 put that on was like, oh, stop. <laughs> it's hard to listen to. But she told a good story that she wanted no one to say goodbye to family members too soon. And particularly during COVID, I think that sentiment hits so many. Um, no one wants to say goodbye too soon, but she really leaned into those pressure points and then the those within the company who raised questions were told that they just didn't believe in the mission. And the company started pushing out those that asked questions. And here, as we roundabout get back to my takeaway, asking questions is still critical and it is necessary. And it is the thing that we should be doing, even when it's not popular. Because I know that there are times when it feels like asking a question is going to have you labeled or ostracized. We have to be able to still have respectful discourse and ask questions so that shit like this doesn't happen. It's the same in the Jen Shaw case. Who was asking questions about how this business was working? Well, the FTC was. <laughs> she was deposed by them before we got to this criminal prosecution that she's in with some similar charges, different behavior, but similar charges here. And that act of asking questions put the whistleblowers in this case at risk. Um, they were threatened and harassed by attorneys. They were followed. It's quite staggering to listen to. And Brian and I sat down and watched The Inventor, which is on HBO. And Yahoo Finance has something coming out on YouTube actually today about this case as well. Because as we're gearing up for trial, there's naturally more interested in like, wait, what was that again? I don't remember what happened with Theranos. What? Theranos. <laughs> Every single time. What happened? Remind me again. So there's quite a lot of information out there. But as we were watching it, she built her board of directors with well-connected individuals, people who were, you know, former secretaries of state, uh, generals and four-star generals from the military, very, very large um, personalities and and reputations. And watching that, Brian was like, do you think that she was building this board to get government contracts? And I was like, I didn't even think of it because my head was more in like the Tom Girardi space going, she's building this board, not just for clout, but for protection. Because Who's going up against all of these people? It's that social proof, right? If all of, if this is her board, if like the head of 
medical, whatever, whatever at Stanford left their tenured position at Stanford to join her company, then the questions we have maybe aren't the right questions because all these really smart and really well-respected people believe in her. And we want to believe this because it's such a good thing if it's true that people override their red flags. And I think the media overrode their red flags and is now having to go, oh yeah, I know we hailed her as like the second coming of Steve Jobs um, and Thomas Edison. And it was all seemingly bullshit. The machine she sold and the technology she sold never worked. And it brings us to the question that's really going to come up in this trial. Is she a fraudy, fraudy fraudster? Is she a victim of hubris and the vibe at in Silicon Valley? Is she just another Silicon Valley entrepreneur that overhypes and overbelieves their own shit? Or is she a victim in another way, which might come up at her trial? So what she's charged with now, because there were additional charges that have been dismissed, they have had some wins in court, and we'll talk about that. But the things she's charged with now is conspiracy to commit wire fraud against the investors and wire fraud. So the hearts of this is really the conspiracy to spin the tails, take the money, and then the act of transferring money from investors into their bank accounts. There were other charges that were struck from this complaint with regard to defrauding doctors and defrauding patients. The court found that those uh, weren't substantiated and dropped those cases. There's also a co-defendant in this case. Co-defendant in this case, Sunny Balwani, was also said to be her you know, lover during this time or her boyfriend. I don't know. It feels so weird to say boyfriend with grown adults. He's also 19 years older than she is during this time. And court documents that were recently unsealed, by recently, I mean like two days ago, unsealed per a journalistic request, indicate that with the mental health information that she has um, submitted to the court, well, her legal team has submitted to the court, that she might be arguing that she has PTSD, that she was manipulated by Sunny, and therefore she didn't have the intent to lie. She didn't mean to mislead investors. She was being told what to do. And this is a woman who sold technology that didn't exist to a $9 billion valuation, to people leaving tenured positions and former secretaries of states being on her board. This is a woman who can sell. If she cannot create, she can sell. And so I wouldn't be surprised if she takes a stand in her trial to try to sell the jury on the story that she is either a victim or that she never came up with the intent to defraud because she believed that her machine would work, even though others told her it didn't. They just didn't believe. She believed. And because she believed, she was not defrauding. So for wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud, the agreement to do the thing, and the government has text messages between her and Sonny. They have uh, emails and, and quite a lot of communication evidence that looks like it's going to be coming in, though things can change and evidentiary rulings can happen as trial goes forward. But the elements of wire fraud are, you know, devised or intended to devise a scheme to defraud, and that would be the business and the, the machine that didn't work. For obtaining money or property, yes, hundreds of millions of dollars in investment. 
that the money or property was obtained by false or fraudulent pretenses or representations, and that there was a transmission of that thing um, in writing or what have you in the executing the scheme to defraud. So that's going to be, you know, not just transferring the money, but all of the, you know, communications with regard to investing in this company and what have you. But what really is going to come down to it, was there an intent to defraud? Was it a knowing fraud? Did she go, oh, I know this doesn't work. I don't care. We'll just go get the money. Or was her belief this does work? And will continue to work if we continue to have investors. And there's this line in Silicon Valley and in other startups and in other entrepreneurial ventures where where is the line before proof of concept when you're getting investors? Where is the line of fraud and belief? Because not all startups work. It's like, this is my idea. I believe it will do this. The thing is, that's not what Elizabeth was saying. In all of the media reports I've watched, she is saying, this works. And she was saying, we've never used commercially available blood testing machines to test our samples. But at the lab, that's what they were doing. So I think there are prior statements that show she was making false statements. It's whether those false statements were made to the investors, because those are false statements made to the public. So the government is going to have to prove that she intended to defraud and show that she didn't just believe her own bullshit, but it went beyond that and was in fact fraudulent because those around her were telling her this technology doesn't work. And in the HBO documentary, one of the individuals in research and development and in the lab said, this defies physics. Like this device actually cannot work and can never work because we can't put all the things that you want in this into this. And then also there's a heat issue because machinery generates heat and heat can invalidate and damage blood samples and testing. So she was told at some point, by the way, this will never work. So it's finding and the government being able to lay down that track so that the jury can go, okay, and then it was this, and then it was this, and then it was this. And what did she continue to say? And what was she continuing to sell investors and to sell Walmart? Because Walmart did invest in her and invest in her company and put these machines into a Walmart. So it will be very interesting to see how her defense plays out, how the government proves intent that intent to defraud is the core of this entire trial. Will a jury believe? And this jury pool is being pulled from those in and around Silicon Valley, right? It is being pulled from people who probably have heard of this story, which is why they have slated two days for jury selection and done very extensive questionnaires. I think jury selection will end up taking a little bit more time because they're going to find it difficult, A, to get people to come to court for jury duty during this pandemic, because that's a problem, but B, finding people who weren't enthralled with this story because the trial is playing out in the area where this story was most highly relevant. The way that the Girardi scandal has kind of rocked the legal world, the Theranos scandal rocked the startup world and the tech world. It is one of the craziest things I've ever seen that there was so much public hype behind the scenes. It was so bad. Again, it's just a house of cards. It's, it's not 
different than, it's really not different than the Girardi case, different circumstances. Yes, but this big personality with this political um, protection almost because of those around them and because the perception was that this person's untouchable, larger than life, and they are gracing all of us peons with their presence and their intellect. And if you question them, you will be threatened or, or intimidated or shunned. And the personality type there just seems to fall along a particular pattern for me, but that's just my own. Watching these cases kind of parallel, watching Girardi and Holmes and Shaw kind of parallel, it's the same thing. It's larger than life. It's bigger than big. It's you just don't understand what I'm doing. You're not dreaming big enough. And then the surrounding of others to make them seem as important as they seem to themselves. And that is how this entire case ended up happening and then crumbling down. There are two whistleblowers plus the author for the Wall Street Journal who also wrote the book Bad Blood that is actually not a plug, but but also if you're interested, it's available on Amazon. John Carreyrou, kind of Carreyrou, was the one who really brought this to light. My only my only statement on that is the original Wall Street Journal article, the title was actually kind of innocuous. It was not this, this clickbaity, I don't know, maybe I've been on YouTube too long, this kind of big, crazy title, like fraud. At, well, I guess that would have been a very big allegation to make in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> what the fuck is happening at Theranos? Theranos, I don't know. But no, it was just like, hey, there's problems here. And talking to these whistleblowers and Erica Chung and Tyler Schultz were the ones who, at their own um, potential peril, came forward and said, no, this is what was happening. And I expect that they will be critical witnesses in this trial. Uh, Tyler Schultz, his grandfather, former Secretary of State, actually was one of the investors. And when Tyler brought this story to him, didn't believe him. The grandfather didn't believe him. It was like, yeah, yeah, uh, I don't believe you. It wasn't until later, and Carrie brought this, Carrie brought this story to light that then the whistleblowers started to be believed. Erica Chung actually went to the regulatory agency because, again, this was a blood lab that was operating in this company, and that is heavily regulated. And so her whistleblowing to the regulatory agencies is what got the lab shut down, and that really pulled the bottom out of that company. But she was a young woman. She has a TED Talk talking about her experience of connecting with Elizabeth Holmes's story of connecting to the mission of the company and wanting this to be the only company she worked for because this mission was so important to her personally and how that the power of that story pulled her in too and made it difficult for her to be a whistleblower. And this is why the law has whistleblower protections so that people can raise the red flag, that people can ask questions. But even with Tyler Schultz's experience, you see that when he raised questions, his grandfather was always so already so bought in to the hype and already so bought in reputationally that he couldn't listen to his grandson, who was working inside the company, and believe what he was saying. 
And that is how things like this happen. And I wonder how much we're going to see as people really dig behind the curtain of Girardi and of Jen Shaw, how, where are the, where's the Erica Chung and Tyler Schultz of those um, organizations that were inside, tried to raise questions and were ostracized or run out or threatened or intimidated? Where, where are the whistleblowers in those cases? And I think that we will see them clearly Jen Shaw's case is moving forward uh, to trial faster than the Holmes case did from the time of indictment to the time of prosecution. But uh, we'll see if the Girardi one moves this direction as well. So in talking about the trial for just a moment, the I mentioned that the defendants had some big wins. Both Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani had some big wins. One of the big ones was getting a number of these cases, well, charges, kicked out, the ones regarding doctors and patients. So those they're not facing. They're only facing the wire fraud with regard to the investors. And by only, I say that's still six different charges of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and then wire fraud, um, five of them wire fraud, one of conspiracy to commit between the two of them. But they also got their trial separated. So they will be tried independently of one another. And this is where those unsealed documents come in because Sonny's team is saying, look, if Elizabeth Holmes is bringing in this evidence that Sonny was somehow um, manipulative or abusive and she has PTSD, this is highly prejudicial to him. And it's COVID. You can't have two juries um, deciding the fate of all of these at the same time. Sometimes you would have the two defendants sitting there together. The government would put on their case. One jury would go out if some of the evidence was about one defendant specifically, and then the jury would come back in. But during COVID, you can't do that. There's just not enough courtroom space to make it practical with distancing practices. So they separated these trials out based on the evidence that's recently been unsealed uh, in part. And now both Elizabeth and Sonny have the opportunity for an empty chair defense where each of them can point at the other defendant, but the other defendant's not there. So it's this other dude did it really Saudi. Some other dude did it. This other dude did it. And Elizabeth can be like, sunny, 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 sunny. But you don't have Sunny then in the same trial taking the stand and saying, no, Elizabeth, 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 because you don't have the two defendants each running their own defense in front of the same jury. So they're able to point at an empty chair of this other person involved in the scheme and say it was on them. I wonder how much the evidence will come in because what we saw in the HBO special was a lot of people who had seen um, Sonny and Elizabeth Holmes together, who had talked to them together, said he was very deferential to her and almost in awe of her. But again, we know that things that happen in public and private can be different. It just gives both defendants, having these trials separate, gives both defendants the opportunity to point at the other one and have a jury say, you know what? I'm not sure enough how big of a part the other one had, I think they're the one who did it. And that for some could be reasonable doubt. So the prosecution has to overcome first the intent element. Did she, again, did she believe her own bullshit so much that she wasn't being fraudulent? She was telling you what she believed or was she willfully blind and actually being fraudulent, saying, la, 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 I'm telling investors, whatever, we'll get there, we'll get there, it's fine. I know it's not true now. I know it's not true now, but we're going to just keep going. 
um, this might never work, but we're just going to keep telling them it's working today. And it's hard because people wanted to believe it. So it'll be interesting. That 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 mental element, the intent element is something the government's going to have to overcome. And then the, you know, some other dude did it defense with the empty chair there is something that they're going to have to overcome. This is going to be an extensive trial because you're going to have, the government's going to have to authenticate not just all of the um, pages and pages of, or pages and pages, probably hundreds and hundreds of text messages and emails and communications, but they also have to overcome the fact that a lot of the lab testing data magically disappeared, which is a whole conversation for another day, because that is that is a deeper a deeper dive. We were supposed to do a case brief. It's supposed to be brief, Emily. The things I'm looking for in this trial: intent, and if she takes the stand to try to sell her own defense. And at this point, I think that she will, and I will be very surprised if she doesn't. Um, from everything I've watched with her, I think that she is probably pretty arrogant. That she feels like she's the smartest one in the room, oftentimes, and that could lead her to say, no, let me tell these juries what really, these jurors, what really happened. I'm smarter than the prosecutor. Um, and I can tell my story. Look, she sold machines that didn't work to very smart people, <laughs> including like, you know, Joe Biden and president Obama who were enthralled with her bringing me back to the point that yes, do I think this company was probably gearing itself towards government contracts? Of course, this would make things easier for the government and the military as well. So seeing her sell this defense to a jury will be very interesting. So if she testifies, which I won't be surprised if she does, I will be surprised if she doesn't, we will touch back then because this is going to be going on for a few months. And I would love to hear your questions about this case on social media at the Emily D Baker everywhere. And when we open up Patreon, we can have those conversations over in the Lawnard community on Patreon. Thank you so much for being a Lawnard. Thank you for being with me today. And may your Wi-Fi be strong. May your families be well. Did it wrong again. This is just never going to be in the same order. That's what I'm realizing now. It's just never going to be in the same order. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your family be well. And may the odds be ever in your favor. I will see you next week. (laughs) 